So thank you, Niall, for that, that warm introduction. And definitely I would uh, recommend to check out the Mindfulness Centre of Excellence webpage for the variety of innovations that are taking place under this umbrella of, of being thoughtful about what it means to develop our, our awareness, what it means to evolve our consciousness uh, skillfully, and where are the places that we can get some teaching and understanding of how to do these things that, that maybe lie a bit beyond the mainstream uh, of our scientific endeavor. And I have a resource list which I will circulate via Nile after this presentation. And you're also warmly welcome to use a copy of the slides which can be provided for you afterwards. Uh, and I suppose they were a bit late coming because I've recently been working on this near-death experience virtual reality project uh, and thinking quite deeply about what happens in the mind and brain in these experiences. And so when Niall said, oh, do you want to do a talk about the neuroscience of NDEs? I said, oh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. Yeah, we've really been thinking a lot about this topic recently. Um, but actually, this is, this is a challenging topic, I realised, after that hasty agreeing to do the talk, um, because we're, we're grappling with some pretty serious issues here uh, around the nature of consciousness uh, and, and where is uh, the meeting of mind and brain, what's, what's sometimes referred to as the hard problem. Uh, but I'm willing, to, I'm willing to have a go at this, and uh, I, I can't really claim to be an expert philosopher of mind. Uh, the neuroscience work that I do now is, is more consultation rather than active research. Um, but I do have a kind of particular perspective and, 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 and orientation over a landscape where lots of different tools and techniques from ancient... and meld and, and kind of bubble up perhaps into something new and I really want to share with you today um, the breadth of that to help you maybe think a little bit differently or open up awareness to some of the things that are going on in this space uh, particularly if we have a wider aperture uh, and we can tolerate a little bit of uncertainty and discomfort in our, in our process. So maybe get a show of hands how many people in the room have either themselves experienced uh, a near-death experience or know somebody know somebody that has yeah hands up okay great so a few hands going up there uh, and and perhaps um, some numbers there that maybe might represent the frequency of this phenomena that's that's in the general population when we actually stop to ask and listen about to people's experiences and then I guess another kind of uh, metaphor that I want to, to bring in here is, is this notion of we're here in London and uh, I don't know how many people here were born in London or lived in London a long time. How many? I know London's such a super diverse. Yeah, so maybe we've got some, we might have some old school Londoners here and, and if you talk to them in the break or in the pub afterwards, they'll probably be able to tell you that there's this kind of like north-south London divide. Yeah, the people that live in the north, they, they kind of rarely go south and they find it all a bit odd and weird down there and they can't really cope. And the people that live in the south kind of go, whoa, North London, whoa, what's up there? Uh, never mind east and west. And, you know, we have this kind of tendency to, to split, actually. Um, and, and I was trying to really think about, you know, what the near-death experience brings in terms of the challenge to consciousness, you know, which on the one hand, you know, maybe it's north, maybe it's south, is, is a position that says, well, actually, when the brain, when the brain dies, when, when the physical matter dies, there is no more consciousness. 
And actually what we need to do is try and explain these phenomena on the basis of just understanding the biology of things uh, and how these phenomena relate to the biology and, and then what that means when the biology ceases to be functioning. And then on the other side, maybe we can call that South London, um, you know, we've got a, a multitude of spiritual tech. Um, spiritual traditions, what we might call contemplative technologies, and different perspectives that are coming at the same experiences but from a very different viewpoint. And so I'm going to use this metaphor of, of, the, of Tower Bridge here because I think we want to begin to move to a position where we're able to accommodate both sides and both narratives um, in order to, to kind of really grapple with this very interesting and provocative topic of near-death experiences and, and what people report and maybe an option for us to to meet somewhere in the middle in the service of trying to understand and go deeper and and be helpful be helpful to people so that's always really one of the overarching intentions how can we use our science how can we use our understanding to be helpful to people uh, and particularly to be helpful to them in times of challenge and crisis like having a near-death experience or going through trauma uh, or, or having some challenges in life. And so this is kind of really what we're grappling with, this kind of, you know, is the mind in the brain or do we have some other consciousness that can be located elsewhere? So let's get a quick sense of who's in the room <laughs> in terms of this position. So I'm going to ask three questions like, are you kind of on the, the brain side? Are you more on the non-local side or have you you're not quite decided? So hands up people here that are kind of thinking, okay, my sense is that consciousness is, is something to do with the brain that the brain produces. Yeah, okay, good, yeah, yeah. And how about on the other side, I guess people that are kind of saying, no, I'm fully open to the fact that there could be this non-local stuff going on and I'm, I'm not really convinced yet and my own personal experience is telling me something different, yeah. Great, great, great. And what about the kind of don't knows sitting in the middles? Yes, let's get right on that fence there. Um, but as my friend said, if you're even on the fence, that means you've already made a move. Yeah, it's, it was a great line. That's my, my dear friend, Cassie. He said, look, if you're already on the fence, you're kind of already gone there. Um, so this is what we're going to be playing with today. And I suppose that, that is some of the language that I use. When we get to these nitty gritty questions, there are a lot of very amazing, very focused, uh, kind of serious scientists who are doing this work at a depth, you know, far beyond my my musings and, and what I'm intending to share with you today. I will be picking and weaving and, and pointing you to some of the people that have inspired my thinking in this work um, if you do want to go deeper. But we're going to be playful with this and, and the intention is to, to help you kind of shake up things a little bit in the brain and mind and, and maybe go away with a few questions uh, to reflect on after the talk. But it's helpful to come into this space in a mindful way. So I just invite you to, to join me now. This, this talk will be interactive. Uh, it will be embodied uh, because this is how we can cope well when we're faced with challenging questions and things that are going to uh, upset the system a bit maybe by challenging some of our assumptions and our beliefs. So I just invite you maybe to take a moment to pause and if you feel comfortable to shut your eyes. And let's just transition mindfully into this dialogue about near-death experiences, what happens to our consciousness when it seems that we're dead or dying, 
And let's just take a breath in and out to see what we bring with us into this conversation. The beliefs and assumptions from our training, our education, our culture. And just kind of honoring those, allowing them to be there, but being cognizant of them. Our training, our early developmental experiences, what the people who were important to us in our lives told us about these things, taught us or shared. And having acknowledged that, just clocked it, no need to do anything more, just clock it, notice. Let's come to here and now, the contact of the body with the chair and the sounds of the room. sense of the body and the heart, the space of the room and the nearness of the other people around us, here, now, breathing in, breathing out. And from this position, mindful of what we bring into the discussion, grounded, present through the breath and the body, setting intentions for our time together. And a suggestion for orienting mind and brain towards curiosity, courage, and compassion. really being on the alert for those moments when we lose curiosity, we get alarmed, or we move to a position of judging, intending curiosity, courage, compassion. And then just taking one or two breaths to finish the exercise and transition. So very briefly, Niall oriented you to, to some of my work, which really does uh, span a number of sectors, including mainstream academic neuroscience and clinical psychology, but also a deep passion for the martial arts and, and more latterly, diving into contemplative traditions uh, and contemplative technologies for exploring awareness. And part of that journey, you know, really has been changes in my ways of thinking about brain and mind. And when I first went to the Institute of Psychiatry, I remember I was super excited. I just saw all these brains in jars. I mean, I think I was a really pure materialist. I was like, wow, here's all the answers. I can figure it all out. You just need to work out what the brain does and then you've got it all sorted. Uh, and as part of that life, which somehow seems a million miles away now, 
Uh, I was editor of a book, Methods in Mind, and I mean, you know, even to admit that we didn't even really kind of have the discussion about putting mind on the front of that book. <laughs> you know, it was kind of a given that, that brain equals mind. And even though there's some evolution in the neuroscience laboratories around the world now, in part stemmed by this interest in mindfulness and contemplative traditions, you know, there's, there's been a, a, a lack of, of really kind of checking of the foundations of some of these technologies that we are now relying on to give us the kind of the facts and the truths. And I suppose I can speak uh, to that position from, from having been involved in, in really trying to understand the evolution of these technologies, EEG, fMRI, PET studies, um, all these different methods that we have for trying to understand the brain uh, and the behavior of people. Uh, yeah, we've got a lot of information and, and the technology advances and we get more and more processing power and the pictures that we get look more and more compelling and wowing. But there is some fundamental uh, underpinnings of some of this work that really needs to be questioned now. And I think now is the time to begin to do that. And, you know, the take home message really is, I think, that, that even the, the scientists that are really trying to be open and, and look at both sides of the question are saying, you know, there, there are some fundamental assumptions that have been made about brain and mind within the neuroscientific community that, that don't currently hold up. So just to bear that in mind as we go through, it's not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, it's not saying science is wrong, but it is about taking a very critical and open view around what's helpful from this narrative and, and what do we no longer need. And I just wanted to, to, to say that this is a, a really great book if you're interested in looking at these issues. Jeffrey Gray, a, a former head of department where I did my PhD. And what I loved about him is he was really talking about consciousness as something arising um, and uh, it was because it has a causal role. It's, it's serving something for the human species. Uh, and it helps us, he says, with our language, our science and our appreciation of beauty. And I've just popped that in there because as we go through the talk today and we talk about near-death experiences, it seems clear that we need to be using some different tools and maybe a different side of our brain uh, in order to understand some of these phenomena. And this is not then the language of science and concepts and analytics and, and kind of strategies. We're now moving into the language of gist, uh, metaphor, poetry, movement expressiveness and actually the arts have a lot to offer us here for helping us to understand this and all good work of course comes from collaborations. so these sci art collaborations are, are really kicking off now and I think this is a, a great time to be living because we're really beginning to honor all the different ways that humans can understand the world around them uh, and of course these are our teachers so I really encourage you as we go through to the session today to have this kind of child's view you know what would this what would we be thinking about here if we were able to look at this as if for the first time, as if for the first time? And let me tell you, I mean, you know, as somebody with two PhDs, it's actually really hard to do this, <laughs> especially when you've really, really trained your mind and brain in a particular model. Uh, I love working with creative collaborators. I love being challenged, but it is challenging. Yeah, when someone's poking you and saying your whole concept of how you understand the world is maybe not quite what you think it was, this is a, this is a pain point often. Yeah, and then especially when you have to say, well, look, what, what do I need to let go of from my model in order to accommodate something from another model, even when that other model is like, whoa, what are they doing over there? That's like a bit, that's like a bit weird. Uh, that's a bit odd. You know, we don't do that. We don't do that in our clinical services. We don't do that in our psychology, room, uh, psychology rooms. 
But, you know, many, many minds <laughs> um, are, are really, you know, becoming clear that actually some of these assumptions need questioning and actually if you thought science was certain, uh, maybe you just need to check that a little bit because there could be some erroneous thinking there. And what's coming out now, actually, particularly through the mindfulness work, is that there are lots of people who are trying to approach this from a different view, whether it's contemplative traditions like meditation or yoga, uh, many, many different ways that people are trying to understand what happens in the conscious experience without the need to draw on the brain as a model at all. Um, so these are kind of from the Tibetan traditions, very, very precise methods uh, of, of kind of training consciousness, um, kind of very integrative methods of using body and mind and consciousness together in order to reach altered states. Uh, we can look as well to perhaps shamanic traditions, the use of audio stimuli to, to provoke certain brain states that allow us to access states that look and feel a bit like what is described in the near-death experience, you know, and beyond, yeah? And sometimes maybe for the kind of neuroscientific colleagues, um, you know, this stuff kind of gets a little bit out there. Um, and yet we see that there is within even the medical community and the academic community, even here in the UK, interest in the psychedelic renaissance and particularly the use of, of psychedelics uh, and things that kind of pharmacologically induce these sorts of experiences for helping people to transform and heal. And that's ultimately, again, that's the end game, helping people to transform and heal. And that's one of the really interesting things that comes out with the NDE is that when people have these near-death experiences, they often come back very transformed. Yeah, they're really clear about their purpose in life. Uh, they've had a sense of kind of who they are. They're clear about what they need to let go of, about what's important. And they do tend to come back sometimes with this very more world-oriented service passion. Yeah, they, they come back with a more world-centric view rather than a self-centered view. Um, and and we'll, we'll kind of touch on that as we go along because I think that's really one of the important things that inspired me in the work that I'm doing uh, with the death incubator is how can we support people to access these transformative experiences without the need for having a heart attack or a major life scare or you know the cancer scare or the or the heart attack these are the things that normally uh, propel people into these expanded states of awareness that then allows us to, um, to kind of revisit our life and to, to, to find a different sort of meaning in what we're doing. And again, I just point to some of these things. You know, there's people that are interested in this mixing and blending of approaches. And the Mind and Life Institute is, is something that I've been connected with for, for some time. And, and their conferences are amazing, where they bring together dialogue, particularly between Eastern and Western traditions. Uh, they have a, a slight focus more on the Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, to take part in, a, not a Mind and Life event, but it was this interdisciplinary uh, event looking at uh, states of consciousness with the Dalai Lama in, in Sao Paulo. I think that was in 2011. And that really, for me, was the opening point, actually, for, for, for diving into this other world <laughs> that looked a bit different from the neuroscience labs and the library at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's, um, but really was, was another world. Uh, one where people were talking about altered states of consciousness, talking about all sorts of different uh, phenomena, uh, and actually saying we have methods and tools and technologies that can allow people to get to these types of altered states where there is transformative potential at the other end of it. 
And fundamentally, what this is about is what's, what's your lens? What lens of attention have you got on this question? Uh, and very basic category there, or very basic classification might be near or far. And much of our modern world, we have this very, very close focus to what's going on. It's kind of uh, the fear-induced, narrow uh, lens of attention that's kind of all about me and my safety and protection and what I've got, this kind of separateness that we're experiencing at the moment in quite dramatic ways all over the world. Uh, and actually this kind of notion that we can widen the aperture of attention, we can kind of do it slowly, <laughs> perhaps if we're in a in a mindfulness training or in some sort of training program, we, we practice slowly widening the lens of attention. Uh, maybe we just get a different sort of perspective with aging. Yeah, This is why we call them the wise elders. Yeah, they got that longer perspective, the broader view. They've got a bit of a landscape going on here. They're not quite so, so close to things. And then what happens in a trauma and, and, and specifically in an NDE is this, you know, <laughs> very rapid expansion of, of the lens of, of awareness. And I'm going to talk a bit about some of the, the brain networks that, that I believe might be uh, helpful for us to examine a bit more. And one particularly called the salience network. Yeah? This is the network that kind of taps us on the shoulder and asks us to pay more attention uh, when something unexpected happens. Uh, so the salience network is really important because it kind of says, look, hey, something important, important is happening. And if there's a quality of fear around it, first of all, we do tend to go quite narrow because we're like, oh, my God, I need to be safe. Um, but then another thing that can happen is actually we can pop very, very wide with our awareness and some suggestion that that might be happening when people have a psychosis experience uh, coming from trauma. Uh, their salience network has, has kind of just popped open uh, and they're suddenly experiencing the world in a very different way. Not only a lot of their own stuff coming up, but also accessing different realms of consciousness, many of which do sound quite similar uh, to the reports that come from very experienced meditators who've spent decades and decades of, of practice trying to access these states. And this is relevant because some of the things that are experienced by the NDEs uh, are, are these same things. And I guess that's that cross-disciplinary piece um, that, that, that I kind of bring. But this warning that when we, when we widen, <laughs> when we open the lens of attention, uh, we can meet things that our mind and brain just doesn't know about and isn't familiar. Uh, and so we need to go gently in this work, particularly if we're having conversations around beliefs. Yeah, because people have beliefs, they hold them in different ways. Uh, and that is important in terms of how we language our discussions, how we come to a shared understanding uh, and how we talk about experiences. And within the NDE research, what seems to be coming out is people are saying, well, you know, the way that people interpret these experiences and how they express and communicate about these experiences is related to their early developmental experiences and how their brain and mind has been conditioned. So those that maybe have come from a family where there was a strong faith practice are likely to use language uh, related to their faith practices when they describe some of these more ethereal experiences that are going on. Um, yet there is also a suggestion, and Eben Alexander particularly talks about this, that there is still something else that's there that's beyond that. Yeah, so we might call that the kind of the transcendent experience. There's something beyond that that, that often doesn't have words, that we can't quite language, 
people need to use art or metaphor or poetry um, to kind of capture the meaning of their experience. Um, and so and that requires, it requires a gentleness and it requires courage. Uh, and so, you know, from a neuroscience point of view, we're talking about something called the, the salience network. Uh, it's this combination of like what we're feeling and how our brain is kind of choosing to orient our attention to things. Uh, and it comes into play when we meet something novel, something that might be dangerous, uh, the shock and awe network is what I call this, because your salience network comes into play moments of shock and moments of awe. And that's kind of what the near-death experience is for many people. It's like a massive shock, <laughs> yeah, because usually uh, much of the research on near-death experiences is coming from the cardiac units. Yeah, these are people that were not planning to have a massive rapid awakening or awareness-enhancing experience usually. Um, that's sometimes what makes these narratives so compelling from people is, you know, they're not, you know, they're just kind of on their way to work, right? And they're just in their normal lives and they're doing the do and they're taking the kids and all the rest of it to school and dealing with the day to day. And then poof, very suddenly, very rapidly, they're, they're, they're popped out into these um, different states of consciousness. They're having all sorts of experiences that they've never had before. Uh, and so naturally the brain is like, what? <laughs> what's that? Um, and yet some of those experiences are also awful. Yeah, they are full of awe. Uh, and, you know, th there's a, a few features of the NDE, which I'll come to in one second, um, which people just say, like, I couldn't believe what I was experiencing. Um, and so when the salience network pops wide open, uh, the, the hypothesis I'm working with is actually we, we get this uh, possibility to engage differently uh, with our default mode network. And so this is the network that kind of stores our memories, it holds together our, our personal narrative, our sense of who we are over time. Uh, it includes the hippocampus uh, as a key structure, which some of you may know is, is, the, is the memory region of the brain. Uh, and so this is important, right, because one of the features of an NDE is the life review. Yeah, people talk about a life review. I suddenly, all my life flashed before me. It was like a video. It was kind of some pictures. Uh, I saw myself, like Theresa May, running through the cornfield, uh, you know, and, uh, and all sorts of other experiences. Majority of people do report kind of pleasant memories. Not everybody. The research suggests between 15 and 30% and of people don't have a, a positive experience when they have an NDE. And, and one reason for that, in my hypothesis, is actually, well, you know, your hippocampus is basically just going like that. And it's going to spit out the memories uh, that are probably closest to the top or perhaps the ones that have the most emotional tone wrapped around them. So when we encode our memories, you know, we really encode deeply the ones that have got good stuff attached to them and bad stuff attached to them. Um, so if we imagine that in a near-death experience, something in, the, something in the hippocampus degrades, you know, then I'm suddenly going to start seeing my memories popping up and I might meet the ones where I felt bad or ashamed or guilty or happy or joyful. You know, so it's going to be, oh, the person that I hurt, the birth of my first child, the death of my grandparent. You know, you, you, might, you might hypothesize that you get those sorts of memories coming up first. And yet, we also have reports of, of people kind of connecting with past lives. 
yeah and we know that there's there's something that that's kind of very often reported uh, within the kind of non-local consciousness literature of particularly children having experiences of past lives so you know does that depend on the hippocampus not sure yeah are these things stored in a kind of physical structure well maybe some of them some of them but the notion of memory and remembering uh, is important in this work and so the NDE really is, is a challenge to us. Uh, it, it's actually quite common. Um, so some statistics here from IANS, a really great source of information if you want to go in and, and dig deeper. Uh, and actually, you know, the majority of this work is now coming from the cardiac units, particularly after resuscitation came into effect after the 1960s. So people were surviving these very traumatic incidences um, where often they were kind of brain dead or, or they went into these coma states of consciousness. But there's a number of reasons why you might have an NDA, and I think critically this one here, as well as thinking that you might die, can also trigger an NDA. And so that's important because we're right in the language of mind there now. <laughs> yeah, so this is mind acting on brain maybe, rather than here, which could be brain acting on mind. Um, fainting is the most common cause. Um, but most of the research, as I say, coming from cardiac arrest. And so here are some of the features. Seeing a tunnel of light, seeing a loved one who has passed away, very common. Feeling a sense of bliss, euphoria, oneness with the universe. Heightened sense of cognition, real vividness of stimuli. Often a great sense of love, of feeling held, of, of, of trust. There is this experience of, of reviewing your life that feels kind of like it can be done quite rapidly. And then this almost like this out of body experience. People talk about feeling like the soul has left the body. Something has left the body. But as I said, not, not necessarily pleasant for everyone. And that's important to acknowledge. And Dr. Raymond Moody is, is really a kind of go-to guy. He coined the term near-death experience in some of his early writings. Uh, and he has these nine points. So again, very similar, usually a strange sound, something about feeling peace and, and, and painlessness, particularly those that are in trauma. They report that they no longer feel the pain out of body, the tunnel, rising up, sense of the body moving, meeting kind of beings with light, beings of light, the life review, and often a reluctance to return. And the other thing that's really intriguing to me from a, a neuroscience point of view as well is the the, the, often there's a choice. There's a choice about whether to return or not. Many people who experience NDEs say, well, I kind of had an option to come back or not. Or like there was a lever that I could pull that would allow me to come back into my body uh, and, uh, and kind of complete my mission. And you know, that's important too, because people use this language. I had this experience where it was, I was invited to consider, what am I doing? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Who am I? <laughs> All of these very fundamental spiritual questions, right? They're the starting point of anybody on the spiritual path, yeah? Who am I? And what am I doing here? Um, so there's something about these experiences that really catalyze or catapult people. And, you know, is it just stuff emanating from a brain? Yeah, it's a bunch of chemicals or like the brain is hallucinating. 
Uh, when the brain dies, you know, it's clear that even when there's a flatline EEG, we don't really know what's happening in the, in the more subcortical, in the lower parts of the brain. Um, so, you know, the EEG is kind of measuring uh, with cortical electrodes and then people say, okay, well, there's a flat line there, you know, that means the brain is dead, but that doesn't necessarily ring true. And I guess the more nuanced argument is saying, well, what's happening down here in the brainstem? You know, we've got these quite primitive consciousness down here in these deep regions of the brain that we can't access uh, with EEG. And there's also some super interesting bits that we can't access at our current resolution with fMRI. Uh, and, you know, the cortex is great, but quite a, lot of the, uh, quite a lot of the meditation literature and even in my own martial arts tradition, Bruce Lee, don't think, feel. Yeah? <laughs> so he's really pointing to us, <laughs> giving us some top tips, um, which is we've got all this fancy pants thinking that we can do. Great. But, I mean, much of the meditation work is about stripping that away. Do less, do less, do less, feel more, do less, sense more. Um, so actually it may be that some of the more juicy stuff is happening down here and the techniques that we've got measuring flatline EEG, for example, at the, in the surface of the brain. I mean, it's interesting, but I wonder if we're looking, putting our attention in the right place. And uh, I love this guy, fellow Canadian, uh, half Canadian I am, and uh, Wilder Penfield from the University of Montreal. He was, you know, he's a, a, a you know, neurosurgeon, neurophysiologist working for decades. And he says, I was working as a scientist trying to prove that the brain accounted for the mind and demonstrating as many brain mechanism, mechanisms as possible, hoping to show how the brain did so. And he was doing like single cell recordings in like direct single cell recording of the brain. So this guy was right up close uh, to, to the phenomena of brain. And he said, in the end, I conclude that there is no good evidence in spite of new methods that the brain alone can carry out the work that the mind does. Yeah, so, you know, we need to listen. These are some of the elders of science and I suggest you catch them when they're on their way out about to retire find these people, yeah, um, because they get quite bold uh, with their statements in a way that they often can't be when they're inside a mainstream institution. Um, and that's often the case. And Peter Fennick is a, a great uh, kind of hero of mine. He's a collaborator on our death incubator project. And, and he's one of those, you know, he had a very mainstream career working with epilepsy, coming across all this amazing data about seizures and God experiences and oneness experiences from people having temporal lobe epileptic seizures. Um, but he didn't really start flying until he kind of left and, and retired. And, and now he's really a, a proponent of, I guess, non-local conscious um, experience and you know this is what this new edge is inviting us to, to to consider if we were able to consider you know what what does this work tell us and it's not new you know these reports have been around for for, for centuries um, you know there's always been interest in kind of psi what we call psi phenomena you know, even to the extent that the US military invested millions of dollars in various programs for remote viewing, for example, precognition, psychokinesis. Who knows, maybe some of this work is still going on. Um, but these are, these are not new ideas. They're not new ideas, but there's a resistance to them because maybe they, they frighten us a little bit. Um, but I, my sense is that that's changing. 
And so we want then to, to be really open-minded. And again, Eben Alexander is somebody I really would point you to. His book, A Mindful Universe, is a great description of his experience of having an NDE. Uh, and he comes from, a, he's a neurologist. You know, so he's got a really great dual perspective, uh, both of the kind of awesome uh, experience of, of death and the transformative potential of, of connecting to this sense of oneness and, and purpose, um, but at the same time, a, a good grounding in the neuroscience. And this is the gap that we want to look at. And this is where I believe NDEs have got something to really offer us. Yeah, let's, let's look. What, what is that thing that's happening between the brain and the mind? So these are the people that I think can maybe help us when we're trying to go into this topic and get an understanding of what's brain, what's mind, how can neuroscience help, how can the other traditions help. And so, as I said, Evan Alexander's book is, is one of my top ones. It's not the only one. I mean, if you go to the IANS webpage, you can find tons and tons. So these are just my, my top recommendations. I also really like Jill Bolte-Taylor. Has any hands up here who's seen that video? Okay, great. I'm going to show a couple of clips from that. I mean, it's a bit weird, like me giving a talk, showing somebody else's talk, but she really says it in a way that I can't. Um, so she was a neuroscientist who had a stroke. She basically had a mindful stroke, and she watched herself uh, having a stroke. And, and I think it was what was curious and amazing about that experience was because she had some prior knowledge when the experience started to happen to her, she didn't panic. And that's my top takeaway for you guys. You know, this is the uh, impetus for the, for the death incubator. It's like, we are all gonna die and something will happen with our consciousness. So let's do some training and have a bit of psychoeducation around that before we do it. Not new for me to say that, yeah? The Buddhists certainly have been saying that for, for, for millennia, you know, preparation for death, death practices. All the main thinkers, artists, psychotherapists, great thinkers of the world agree regular contemplation of death and preparation for death is something that lets you live fully. So it's not a topic to be shied away from. But if we kind of have a sense of what's going on, that really helps us not to panic. And for me, one of my hypotheses is, is like when you're in that transition from brain to mind or you're making that leap of faith <laughs> from brain to mind, uh, it really helps if you're not panicking, because if you're panicking, your brain is in a whole different kind of hormonal state that will just change everything. It'll be full of cortisol and adrenaline and your thinking will have a particular flavor. And then I like this as well. Um, so uh, Marjorie's book here, Infinite Awareness. So this, again, was a, a kind of a scientific mind that had an awakening experience. Um, and I suppose when I'm reading her book, you know, reflecting on my own journey with this, which as I pointed to before, it's not always an easy one uh, when you're coming from a very uh, strong training background, lots of undoing. But Evan Thompson as well, if those of you that have um, kind of come across embodied cognition may be familiar with him, he's really jumping into this topic and there's some resources, um, including some podcasts that I've got on a list for you if you want to dive into that. But I've, I haven't read the full one. I've read some excerpts of his book that's on Amazon. It's a little ebook, uh, very quick and easy to buy. And then this book, Waking Dreaming Being, trying to look at that, that almost like that liminal space <laughs> between uh, science and spirituality, between uh, a biological model and a spiritual model, and, and just increasing the range of our understanding to a biopsychosocial model. 
and it's coming, you know, it's coming in, in, in individuals who are interested in collaborating between the scientific uh, and, and the traditions. Um, Tara Brack is a top recommended practitioner, clinical psychologist, also a Buddhist teacher, and she really weaves these things together well to help us understand. And Evan has this lovely phrase, staying with the open question. Staying with the open question. And I, again, in this moment of transition, we've had this kind of polarization. We're now trying to come back together. And it's really important that we stay long enough in this mess of not knowing. Because if we go too quickly to our solutions, then I think we're going to not get the best out of both worlds and really make something that can, that can gel together. And it's not easy because it invites us um, to, to have courage, to be curious, to, to, to be in a space of not knowing. And there's nothing a brain likes less than uncertainty, let me tell you. It likes to know what's going on, and some of us have that trait more than others, <laughs> the controlling monkeys. Um, and uh, learning to let go, anyone that's tried to do it, is hard, right? Um, but if we want to go there, uh, and some people really are saying, you know what, actually, there is a, a, a need to blend, but actually, we also really want to now embrace another way. We're interested in embracing another way, and some people have kind of really jumped into that non-local medicine, energy medicine, uh, consciousness ways of working with healing that are becoming more and more popular. And some of the work that, that I've been doing in the various collaborations around you know, opening up to a biopsychosocial spiritual model that allows us to have conversations with people having these different kinds of experiences, whether it's in a psychotic trauma-related psychotic experience, whether it's within the context of taking pharmacological compounds, whether it's in a kind of religious experience, mystical experiences, um, or whether it's from something like an NDE as a result of, of a medical procedure. How can we talk about these things? How can we understand them? Um, from a brain point of view and from a spiritual point of view. And we need these three things. Yeah, we need these three things. Curiosity, courage and compassion. Part of what I want to introduce now, and then we're going to do a little practice, um, is a little bit, sorry, I've gone the wrong way, of uh, a model that can help us to understand what's going on. So I talked a little bit about the salience network, the thing that taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, something important's going on, you better take a look. You wanna go narrow or you wanna go big with that? When we go big, we get a chance to see some of the stuff that's happening in the space of the mind. We get the memories, we see the conditioning, we understand what's going on uh, a little bit from our own patterning and our history. But then something also allows us to kind of keep going up, up, up out there into the realm of common shared understanding, into the realm of cosmic understanding even. Uh, and when we're doing that, actually, we do disconnect from kind of the reality of what's happening here and now. And there's that sense that if we can really drop into the present moment, then actually the things that are here around us can begin to fade away. And many meditators talk about this, and the shamatha tradition talks about that sense of withdrawing the senses in order to expand the, co the, the consciousness. And that's maybe something that people are experiencing when they have that out-of-body uh, experience. They, they lose a sense of kind of self 
that comes through being embodied and they get into a more expanded state of consciousness uh, where the self-other boundaries are no longer as obvious. Uh, and that for me is, is, you know, that's part of our default mode network. It's, it's not the kind of basic level, but it's the part where we learn as kids, like I've got my mind, you've got your mind, my body's here, your body's there. I've got my intentions, you've got your intentions. We're all kind of doing, we're doing our own things in life. We're doing, we're a, an ego that does, we're an identity that does. But yet when we go big around this, when we pop out of that, Yes, yeah, something really shocks us, something really surprises us, and we go, oh my goodness, look at that bigger picture. We come out of that self-identification, we come out of that individuation, we begin to get into that sense of common humanity. Uh, compassion practices really tap into this. You know, there's no I anymore, it's we. Um, there's a sense that how I am with myself is how you are with yourself, what I do internally uh, maps out into the creation of the reality around me so there's no separation anymore and I call this the bigger why yeah we get in touch with the bigger why and people report this uh, in the NDE experiences they say I went through my life review I did some stuff about who I needed to forgive and saw all the people that I'd harmed and you know, then I met some kind of beings. I was looking above the earth. I saw kind of how small I was, or I realized how interconnected we all were. Uh, and then I felt I was being given this invitation to come back and be in the world in a different way. Uh, and often it is choices about work, priorities, what's important, who's important, how am I going to spend my time? What am I doing on the planet? How are we treating the planet? <laughs> yeah, this kind of sense of my whole orientation of life has been shifted. Uh, and for me, my understanding is it's because we've gone from doing, yeah, which is when we're like, I have to do things and pay attention to this and think about that and notice that and then get to work and think about that and then notice that and then come back and then I'm doing work and I'm going round and round and round. And then it's suddenly like, hey, Tamara, or guess what, you got a cancer scare. Or guess what, you had a heart attack. Or guess what, something really unexpected happened to you. <laughs> breaks your whole routine. Yeah, breaks you out of doing. You're not doing anymore, you're not working anymore, you're not planning anymore. You're like, <laughs> wow, am I still alive? <laughs> yeah, what's going on? So it shifts us from this doing into this being mode. And it seems like this stays with us, stays with us when we come back from a near-death experience. People have a catalytic experience um, that can often really do the work of many decades of meditation practice, actually. Yeah, because there's other ways to get to it. As I've said, you can kind of go the slow and steady route, which is like, I just get wise with age. <laughs> I get wise with age and experience. That's kind of how I'm going into my being mode. Uh, you can do it through the meditation practices. Uh, yeah, you can do it through movement practices. My work is, is through the body. Um, you can do it through a more rapid expansion with psychedelics. And then the near-death experience is, is also one version of that. So just trying to capture that there, that shift from this busyness of doing, 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 and then coming out into being. And we're going to take a little break now just to uh, let you stand up and, and shake your legs. But maybe to just be thinking about that, 
you know, what the near-death experience work and this mix and blend of the scientific uh, and the spirituality brings to us is this recognition that actually if all of this doing stuff is very abruptly brought to a halt uh, by such a kind of catastrophic and traumatic incident, it pops us out into this other kind of realms. We need to go through some of our own stuff. You know, we need to do some of our psychology work. We need to do some of our reflections, our forgiveness letters, our gratitude letters, our, our life reviews. Yeah, get that work done, people. I really, really recommend that. And we do that in the, in the death incubator. But this is kind of the edge of where brain and mind are meeting, in my view. And uh, after the, the break, we'll come back and we'll, we'll do an exercise. And then we'll think about, well, what are the tools that we've got to kind of swim in this, in this zone? Yeah, because we can learn a lot about the brain from, from this thing here. The brain can help us understand a little bit about this transitional mode into mind. Uh, but my suggestion is that we need some other skills and tools uh, if we really want to make sense uh, of, of some of the more out there elements of the experience of an NDE. So let's just pause a moment. Again, I just guide you in a little mini practice um, and then we'll have a break. So just if you feel like closing your eyes or just settling into the body and aware that I've shared a number of things and your task is to see, particularly in your body, or maybe even in your heart, if you can, and your mind, what landed and how. Was there a word or a phrase that landed in a way that resonated? or something that caused a reaction. I'm just using your hippocampus there, a light review of the first part of the talk. But just see what had the energy of, oh, around it. And what had the energy of, huh, what? and anything in between. And just taking a breath. And if you wanted to note down anything that came up for you, then maybe we can, we can pick that up uh, in the, in the Q&A. So we're gonna pause now for just a comfort break. So I'm going to bring you back in uh, sharing a, a clip from Jill Bolte-Taylor's A Stroke of Insight talk. So this was a neuroscientist who had what, in my view, was kind of a mindful stroke experience. She didn't panic. She was able to watch. She was able to observe what was going on in her body. And she was doing so from a position of, of a deep scientific knowledge and training about what was happening uh, in, her, in her brain and in her body. And, and this bit of the clip particularly struck me. Let's see. I can no longer define the boundary, the bound balance, and I'm propped up against the, the wall. This is the stroke. And I look down at my arm, and I realize that I can no longer define the boundaries. 
of my body. I can't define where I begin and where I end because the atoms and the molecules of my arm blended with the atoms and molecules of the wall. And all I could detect was this energy, energy. And I'm asking myself, what is wrong with me? What is going on? And in that moment, my brain chatter, my left hemisphere brain chatter went totally silent. Just like someone took a remote control and pushed the mute button, total silence. And at first I was shocked to find myself inside of a silent mind. But then I was immediately captivated by the magnificence of the energy around me. And because I could no longer identify the boundaries of my body, I felt enormous and expansive. I felt at one with all the energy that was, and it was beautiful there. And then all of a sudden, my left hemisphere comes back online and it says to me, hey, we got a problem, we got a problem, we gotta get some help. And I'm going, oh, I got a problem, I got a problem. So it's like, okay, okay, I got a problem. But then I immediately drifted right back out into the consciousness. And I affectionately refer to this space as La La Land. <laughs> so she's here talking about, I guess, an experience of, of being acutely aware of that transition from, from kind of one type of consciousness to another. And here she's, she's evoking the concept of the left and the right brain. Uh, as different modalities that we can use to understand experience. On the one hand, the language, the science that Jeffrey Gray talks about in terms of the, the rationale for consciousness. Um, but then on the other hand, this kind of this beauty, uh, these things that we can perceive only maybe when we're not thinking about stuff, but more so when we're, when we're feeling. And many of the things that she described are, are things that are talked about when people have a near-death experience. So we're going to do like a mini, uh, a mini meditation now to, to give you a sense of what are some of the key features of, of a near-death experience. So if you will, it would be a little sort of pretend uh, near-death experience in a guided meditation for you. Um, so we'll be using the imagination, we'll be using visualization, uh, and I'll be using my voice as a guidance uh, to, to just give you a, a, a sense, a little mini snippet, I suppose, of, of what are the things that people report. And this is the work of, of Penny Sartori, who's a very well-known uh, near-death experience researcher, a nurse who worked for many years on the cardiac units. And as I said, this is where a lot of the data comes from, but also point you to the IANS website um, for, for many other reports and videos and things if you want to dive a bit deeper. So I will be showing some pictures which you can look at as well, but if you want to sit with your eyes closed, we'll go for about uh, maybe five, five, five or seven minutes or so with this practice. Um, so I just encourage you to, to come into a posture now um, that's comfortable for you uh, and, and almost begin to imagine that moment uh, where you're lying or sitting And there's a sense that there's a part of self that might rise up from the physical body. Having a sense of the mind moving upwards and outwards. And the option at any point to just disengage from the exercise if you need to. But seeing now if you can have that experience of moving your mind up and out 
expanding awareness beyond the physical body. And aware as you do that, you may bump into the expanded bodies of the others in the room, sensing, connecting, bringing this attitude of friendliness to that and kindness. We're doing this quickly, but imagine if you can then a tunnel with a light. Those with meditation practice may be able to visualize this more easily. A sense of visualizing light in the mind, in the body, in the heart. and having the impulse to move towards the light. And understanding that this is the way to move towards. The steps may be fast or slow. Often the experience is something that has a quality of speed and then time slows down. From this position, getting a sense of the body and the mind being somewhere else, having this helicopter view or astronaut view, not only of the body here sitting, not only of the venue in London and England, Europe, but looking down on the whole world. Mind observing the earth. Zooming in, zooming out, recognizing how small we are how fragile the earth is, how small the earth is in comparison to everything else that's there. And when the mind reach, reaches these states and expanded states of consciousness here. Maybe we find that time changes, the perception of time changes, such that we can do a review of our whole life very quickly. Maybe just asking yourself now in a light way, what am I most proud of in my life? What am I most ashamed of in my life? 
what can I let go of to be free from those narratives and conditioning. And what's really important now for me in this moment And in the process of the life review, we might meet some emotions, strong emotions, both positive and more challenging. And an invitation in this moment to open to the whole breadth of our emotional life without fear, in order to clear, clear that baggage, clear those narratives. in order to then approach with this child's view, seeing the world with fresh eyes. And people in Hindi's report this connection with other types of realities, symbols, fractals, geometric patterns, codes. <coughs> Language and contact in ways that are not familiar to us here, including the experience of meeting energy in different forms, communicating in different ways, being invited to check in, what am I doing here? Who is this I? And why am I here? And then coming back from our mini experience holding in mind, if we can, the memory of somebody who was for us a type of perfect nurturer, giving us unconditional love. Somebody that has our back at all times, no matter what, who we can trust deeply. and who we know we can really be ourselves with. Holding that sense in mind as we begin to come back to this body and this time. Aware that we can make choices at the micro and the macro level every day, every moment use our neural architecture to tune our lens to a different type of sensing, experiencing, and sharing of life. And 
Find us in the final moments, tuning into that question for you. What is my purpose? What is my mission? Finishing with three breaths. Opening the eyes. So it's not quite an NDE, but it's a, a <coughs> mini experience of of, of what people report. And, and the reports um, do seem to have these commonalities, something about disconnecting from the body, having an out-of-body experience, traveling up, above, getting a broader view, a wider perspective, uh, making contact with, with things that have this more energetic quality, some of it with intentional qualities, including communications, um, the opportunity to see loved ones uh, often grandmothers uh, in, in this space, a chance to review your life, to work through the emotional baggage, uh, and then a chance to almost start again um, and, and re-enter life. And so I'm going to talk a little bit then about how some of these experiences might map to this neurocognitive model. So, you know, this is a, 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 what we call a triple network model. Um, that helps us understand how our brain organizes itself when we're doing stuff, uh, when we're trying to pay attention and we need to focus and recruit our attentional networks. We need to set goals and targets and activate circuits in the brain that allow us to stay on track with what we're meant to be doing. Um, this beautiful, imaginative, creative, but often clogged space of the default, mo default mode network our wonderful source of creativity and imagination that often gets a bit stuck with all the baggage of our narrative and our stories and this sense of I, uh, I that was wronged, I that was bullied, I that did or didn't get what I wanted or needed. The salience network, again, this critical network here um, that I believe is, is really implicated in uh, the moment of, of trauma or, or how we can get these moments of often what's called post-traumatic growth. Um, when our salience network pops wide open, it forces us to take a different look, a different view on what's happening and what sense we're making of it. Uh, and when we have this more helicopter view, we can do it, as I said, through meditation, through therapy, through supervision, through mentoring through taking uh, various compounds, through a near-death experience. Uh, it allows us to come out of this doing mode and into the being mode. And certainly when, when a near-death experience is occurring, uh, there's not much doing to be done. Yeah, the body doesn't need to do anything. There's no need for planning or strategizing. Uh, you don't need to use your, your kind of uh, executive attentional networks to make plans for the things that you're going to do in the future because as far as your body is concerned, uh, there is no future. You're only in this moment of now, literally a life and death moment of now. And how the brain responds to that uh, is by kind of opening up uh, I believe the salience network in this very rapid and wide way that gives us some interesting opportunities. 
And so within the default mode network, um, we have, I believe, a number of things that could be happening that help us to explain some, but not all, of what might be going on in a near-death experience. And I think that's the, the thrust of really what I want you to take away, is that we need to have these blended models. Um, the science can give us a lot of information, actually. You know, well, what happens when the brain doesn't receive enough oxygen? Well, we know that the hippocampus is affected by that. That's one of the most common outcomes from a stroke is people have memory problems. Some of that gets repaired, some of it doesn't. You know, so we can have this understanding that something happens in an NDE maybe where there's a degradation of memory and the time locking feature of memory uh, such that we no longer have a sense of time or things running one after the other or time slows down or speeds up in some way um, because those networks in the brain have been disrupted um, by the trauma. We know that there are alterations in the attention networks of the brain when we begin to take what's called a more open monitoring rather than focused attention uh, view on the world. And again, we can train that with meditation practices, lots of very specific practices um, that are brought to us by the Buddhist traditions around focusing attention versus widening the attention. Uh, and when we do that, we, we recognize we begin to dissolve the self-I boundaries. Uh, some of that may be being experienced as the dissolution of the body. So that sense of I that's contained within a single body becomes degraded. Um, and we get a big, more expansive view of what's going on. But then there seems to be these, these kind of phenomena that really defy our scientific understanding. And then these are the things that I think perhaps some of the work um, with psychedelics or maybe with cyberdelics will be able to help us unpack uh, in a way that will allow the, the, the communities of science and spirituality to, to mix and blend together. Um, and these are, you know, kind of the fractals, the energetic aspects. Um, this sense of dissolution and oneness and, and wholeness um, that people report. The whole thing, though, does require that we manage our emotional life. And again, we, we meet our emotional life here in, the, here in the 3D world, but also people report that they can have experiences that are awful, <laughs> awful, <laughs> um, extremely kind of compelling, joyful, heart-expanding moments when they're in these altered states, but also things that can be quite scary too, yeah? The classic bad trip of LSD might be an example of that. Yeah, the person is in an altered state of consciousness, but they are still feeling. Yeah, so feelings for me are this interesting intersect because we have a lot of information about how the body regulates our emotional state. Yeah, we have a lot of information about the, the chemicals and the hormones that are involved, uh, particularly around fear states. Um, but how these are influencing uh, our perception of, of things at this level is, is, is still not clear, but it, it seems that it is important that we are calm <laughs> and that we don't panic. And one of the things that helps us not to panic is something else that's kind of over here, which is related to the salience network, which is our capacity to respond rather than react. And it's curious to me that people have this experience of feeling loved, trusted, they're in a position of trust, they're feeling held, they're feeling nurtured. Because actually what some of this points to for me is that there's, uh, there's a sense of what we call the perfect nurturer. In psychology we have this language of the perfect nurturer. 
somebody that just kind of holds you like this. Yeah, their hands are just literally holding you there and you, you can't really get anything wrong. Um, and, you know, you can have that if you have a, a, a nice upbringing with a parenting experience of somebody who has a good secure attachment themselves, who's able to give you that sense of, of trust in the world and a, an optimism that things will be okay. Not everybody gets that. Many people have experiences of, of being uh, raised by, by families or in situations where they don't have that sense of fundamental safety and trust. Uh, and then it seems that we meet a version of that. We meet a version of that, um, you know, in, in this kind of part of the NDE experience where people just say, I felt everything was going to be okay. I felt that I just needed to trust. I knew that if I just made surrender, uh, and these are sort of the words of, of spiritual language, but the brain is involved because we have to make that choice. We have to make that choice, and it is a jump, and it is a jump into something different, uh, in my view, in my view. Um, and in the work of therapy, this is, this is kind of what we're doing. We're working through the layers. We're, we're kind of, you know, we're talking to people that, that are not able to regulate, and they are reacting all over the place, and they're not able to respond. Their salience network is getting triggered all the time uh, and it's creating problems of anxiety and depression, rumination and fear. So we're working with the emotions and we're understanding their stories and we're inviting them to kind of take a, a longer view or a bigger perspective. But what we also know from the literature that, you know, people that are really struggling with long-term physical and mental health conditions, they find it very helpful to have a spiritual perspective. And there is evidence for that. Yeah, the transpersonal view on chronic disease allows people to have a sense of everything will be all right, even though it's not. Yeah, and that's very valuable from a treatment point of view, uh, even if you're not fully able to understand what is the mechanism of that. But for me, I understand that there's a mechanism there, which is something about retuning the salience network. Meditation retunes it in a slow way. Traumatic experience can retune it in quite a dramatic and rapid way. But where we get to, whether it's through meditation or near-death experiences or therapy or mindfulness training, is an orientation of mind that's much bigger, yeah, much bigger, much broader. Um, it's more about the bigger why. It's more about how am I connected to everybody else. It's more about what I call this big green container the brain sits inside of all of this. Yes, we need our brain to make sense of things, but one of the things we can use our brain for is to choose which lens we want to look at the world through. And we need a different way to do this. And again, I'm going to just pull up a few minutes of Jill Bolte-Taylor here because she just says it in such a great way. I think our scientific methodology has led us too much into the left brain ways of thinking and then that means that we're, we're missing some valuable detail but partly we don't want to go there because it involves a different way of being in the world and that can be a challenge. Um, so I'm going to just see what she says. So she, she was a neuroscientist and she really came from a, a position of a deep knowledge of, of what the brain is doing but here she talks just briefly about the right and the left brain. So is it three twenty-two? There we go. Our right human hemisphere is all about this present moment. It's all about right here, right now. 
Our right hemisphere, it thinks in pictures, and it learns kinesthetically through the movement of our bodies. Information in the form of energy streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems, and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like, what this pro present moment smells like and tastes like, what it feels like, and what it sounds like. I am an energy being connected to the energy all around me through the consciousness of my right hemisphere. We are energy beings connected to one another through the consciousness of our right hemispheres as one human family. And right here, right now, we are brothers and sisters on this planet here to make the world a better place. And in this moment, we are perfect, we are whole, and we are beautiful. So, again, she's great because she comes from this dual perspective. Um, but I think she really nails it there. And this, again, for me, this is where mind and brain meet and exactly how they're doing it is, is still an open question. But it seems that there is something very important about, you know, what I call going, going big and going right. <laughs> yeah, so going big is about expanding the aperture and really going much broader and wider. And we need to use our brain to do that. We need to adjust our attentional networks to kind of go big. She's also really suggesting go right. Yeah, so the arts, movement-based practices, creativity, music, poetry, all of the things that stimulate our right brain, these are the things that can help us to get access to these transcendent experiences, perhaps on a more regular basis or even on a permanent basis. And then that need to manage our emotional life, do that emotional training, do that kind of life review process to soften up, loosen up, uh, all that stuff that's stored in the hippocampus, all the emotion that's stored in the body um, so that when we go into these altered states, whether it's at death or perhaps we might be um, doing plant medicines or something like that in order to heal, um, you know, we have the capacity to be with courage there, to, to not let fear take over. to study Oops. the brain. So that's shown here very, very generically uh, in this sort of, you know, again, some people think, oh, this is a bit old hat, you know, kind of like, didn't they debunk that thing about left and right brain, you know, years ago? Uh, and actually, there was some confusion about this, but my modern take on this is actually the left and the right brain do have some fundamental differences at the, at the microcellular level uh, in terms of the number of nodes and the types of connectivity. So here in the left brain, we tend to have very big nodes, for example, for language uh, and other kinds of concepts. And then there's lots of long range interconnections between them. So dense nodes and then lots of kind of long uh, motorways, let's say. Whereas in the right brain, it's all a bit of a mess, actually. Uh, there's lots and lots of tiny little nodes all over the place. There's kind of little country lanes. There's a few super highways, but there's all sort of I think of the back lanes of Somerset. I don't know if anybody's been to Somerset. I was born in Somerset. Like these little tiny lanes that you just like, where are you going? You can't even see over the hedges. Um, you know, so they do have some fundamentally different properties. And, you know, we, we have this division on our society, don't we? Like, well, I'm a scientist and I'm an artist. Or like he does, you know, accounting and that person does painting. Yeah, and we have these preferences, but if we want to kind of be able to be in these altered states of consciousness or understand more about our human experience in this way, um, then there is an invitation, as I say, 
to go right and to go big. And what comes out of these experiences then, I think, is, is also part of the fascinating picture. You know, something has fundamentally altered the perception of the individual. So what's changed at the level of the brain? And my hypothesis really here is that we've, we've changed something about how the salience network is tuned. We've changed something within the attentional networks of the brain that mean that we now have a capacity to notice when am I narrow and when am I wide? Yeah, when is it helpful for me to narrow down? You know, and that's the left brain, like very narrow, focused attention, task-oriented, goal-oriented, focused attention. Fantastic. We need it. But like, can we in in introduce a flexibility there to also know that we can configure our attention network in a different way? This is the work of Anton Lutz. Uh, we can configure our attention network in a different way that gives us an expanded perception of what's going on. And some of that is about being able to sense the world differently. Um, and this is the work of, of Alex Gray, uh, a visionary artist who actually started his career doing medical illustrations. So again, he's, the, he's an interesting guy because he came from drawing medical illustrations, highly detailed technical biological information. Um, but actually his kind of experiences and his visions um, took him to a different way of sensing the body, um, which he captures here in, in this um, amazing diagram, how we can sense the gross body. Yeah, and absolutely, Penfield's work here, very important. Uh, different parts of the brain associated um, with different body parts. And, and we have this thing here that's called the homunculus. Yeah, Penfield stuck an electrode in one part of the brain here and somebody's thumb wiggled. Yeah, then he stuck an electrode here and somebody's knee jerked. Um, so we have mapped out here in the cortex, you know, lots and lots of information about how the brain is processing the physical body and the moving body. Uh, but what becomes less clear when we're looking at it from a neuroscience point of view is, well, what, what are we actually sensing here? Yeah, what, what is that experience that people have of energy, of light, um, of, of more subtle sensing? And, you know, at the very basic level, there might be an intermediate picture here, which is, you know, even the hardcore materialists, uh, many of them might be people within the, the medical community, very bought into the biomedical model. They will still use the language of gut instinct. Yeah, they will use the language, I mean, especially these very experienced cardiologists and oncologists. You know, the really experienced ones, they, they, they're operating really on their right brain. They just said, I, I just knew that that patient was going to have a heart attack. No, I just knew that that was a stage four. I knew that that was a stage four tumour. And if you ask them to kind of recount in, in logical, conceptual, analytic language how they made that decision, they're often not able to. Um, so, you know, even within the biomedical model, I think that people are, are tapping into different sorts of subtleties within the body system. Maybe they're not quite at this level here. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know if I want my doctor to be like that. Uh, because uh, if I need some medical procedure done, maybe I need them to be like more here. Uh, but, you know, if you want to go to non-local medicine and energy medicine, then actually your doctor is somebody that's able to, to work here. And we have this already in, in, in some of our communities of, 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 of healers. Um, so this is, this is the evolution. 
but it requires us to go, you know, to go through our stuff, to go through our conditioning, to go through our conditioning of our body. Uh, and as I say, into this bigger, bigger question of like, what is it for? How am I approaching it? Which lens is going to be helpful? What meaning do I want to make from this experience? And this is, I guess, where the clinical psychology work and, and the psychoanalytic work comes in. What is the meaning that we want to make from our lives or from experiences such as NDEs? Yeah, when we're invited to question and challenge, as any big trauma event might invite us to do, what's important now? How are we going to reorganize ourselves? And I think the NDE experience, you know, really is inviting us to think about this and providing some, some provocative challenges. And my takeaway really, I think, for you guys is, is to be prepared <laughs> uh, and to, to consider this as an art form. Yeah, this is Peter Fenix in Elizabeth Fenix's book, The Art of Dying. Uh, and, you know, both of these authors have tried to bring together recognized methods of scientific inquiry to questions of what happens next. Um, so Monica Renz um, doing very large scale qualitative mixed methods approach in a kind of normal dying environment and finding that large numbers of people are reporting deathbed visions, different sorts of communications, uh, a sense of expansiveness moving into different sorts of environments. This is just in the kind of normal dying. Uh, and much of that also documented by Peter Fenwick's book. Uh, and some of this is, is the work that we're tapping into with the, with the death incubator is how to provide a multi-sensory, multimodal, mixed, blended art science um, kind of ancient meets modern uh, practices to help people prepare for the shifts in consciousness that they're going to meet uh, in the dying process. And how we deal with it is, is really critical because there is a tendency, uh, I think, in some parts of the, of the medical community to just dismiss this. And from a psychological point of view, I really believe that that's not helpful, even if we don't have a full answer on, like, is this thing like a real thing that people are, are kind of going to? Is it a place that people travel to or, or, or what is it? We, we still don't really know. But actually to honour and value the experiences of people in this very delicate and sensitive moment of their life, I think is really important. I found this cartoon. Um, it says, why Philmont Hospital has the highest incidence of near-death experiences? Um, and you can see here that, that some of the medical staff have dressed up as doctors and shining a light on the guy's face. Um, and I suppose, you know, we often use, we use humour, don't we, when things are difficult and painful. Um, and that's always a kind of clear sign sometimes that you've <coughs> poked somebody a little bit. Uh, British, of course, are famous for that, yeah, our sarcasm and, and making jokes out of things that are uncomfortable. Um, thinking of like Blackadder and <laughs> all this kind of Monty Python kind of classic British uh, comedy and humour. Um, and I wonder if some of this is about that, you know, the, the challenge to the, the medical community um, and the challenge to the biomedical model that seems to be gathering pace now um, requires us, I think, to have some sensitivity. But I think I'm going to pause now on, uh, on this slide here because I think this also, for me, sums up um, what's necessary with this work, whether it's the attempts to look at blended approaches and the need to step into other models, um, whether you're a neuroscientist who's now really being invited to 
to come to uh, a new opinion or a different opinion or a, a slightly expanded opinion of, of what is this brain-mind connection or whether you're somebody who's facing a terminal diagnosis or, or experience of trauma or challenge or even just the everyday stuff. How can we be kind to our salience network, these brain regions that, that tell us that something needs our attention, that something might need us to revisit our intentions, to revisit our bigger why, our purpose, what we're doing here, uh, and to see what it might be like to, to have an experience that invites us to connect to the world um, through our right brain more than through our left brain. So I realized that I've kind of covered a lot here and you know, I went, I went quite high level um, and the science that I presented was more around the use of this network modeling um, which is just one approach to using the brain science because, of course, there are many areas of neuroscience. Um, but I'd like to leave time now for some questions. Um, but I would encourage, again, maybe just a little pause um, to, to see what's landed uh, before we go into the question period. So again, that might be closing the eyes. And if you wish, you could even put the hands on the heart. So a very quick fire way to regulate the vagal nerve, which can be helpful if we're being provoked or challenged in some way. Placing hands on the heart. Feeling the contact of the hands against the body. <coughs> Maybe feeling the heart beating inside the chest. It's that miracle of breath and circulation. Focusing attention on that region, initially using that attention network to shift and then sustain focus on the hands and the heart. And then see if you can deliberately shift the type of attention to one that's more diffuse. Almost like you're using the peripheral vision of your internal attention. Still in the region of the heart. What's true for me? What's landed? in a way that resonates. What's landed in a way that jars. And 
what might, might I like to find out more about? What's true for me? I'm finishing with three breaths. Opening the eyes. Some time for questions. Ah. You think there's a mic? Great. So yeah, let's take one from here. Thank you for a very engaging talk. I was particularly drawn to the point that you raised about when people have a, an out-of-body experience and they have a choice to come back. Yeah. Um, and I, I found that really interesting, that element of choice, which I've never thought about before. And I wondered if you could direct me to any work that, that people might be doing to kind of discuss that or investigate that a little more. Yeah. I mean, the main... Best website is the IANS, International Association of Near-Death Studies. They've got very comprehensive lists. The other one is Raymond Moody's website. Yeah, I've got, I have actually got a list of resources that I will share that includes that, but Raymond Moody's site is also very, very good. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the, the choice, the free will. Um, the free won't, actually, is kind of what the modern science is, is really saying. The free won't, the choosing not. So I'm, not, I'm choosing not to remain there in order to come back and do something. Yeah, it's fascinating, but I think for me, the thing is we have that choice every moment also. So it's just maybe a big, massive, amplified version of, of something that happens in the micro moment by moment. And I really recommend this practice, just like, what's true for me now? What do I need? What's important to me? Okay, then they go to my next step. What's true for me now? What's important? Okay, now I go to my next step, yeah. Every moment, a micro-death. <laughs> Thank you, yes. Somebody near to you, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask, you did mention uh, martial arts yeah. before. So I'd like to know how there is a connection link yeah. between this uh, mind and body and yeah. mind or whatever you call it. Yeah. What does martial arts come to yeah, well, for me, I mean, it's the, the multiple routes to altered states of consciousness. Um, so some, some routes, uh, you, go, you stay still in order to detect the motion and the movement of mind. And that's what the kind of sitting on a cushion practices tend to do. There's a sense of stilling the body in order to amplify your possibility to detect movement of mind and be able to study it. Uh, and then a constant loop of movement and stillness and movement and stillness. Whereas martial arts often starts with the movement practice uh, as part of the discipline. And actually it's about reaching some of those same states, but through a different means. And so there's a variety of martial arts and it's a bit like the yoga. You know, you can do yoga in the gym or you can do yoga with a, a kind of guru who's really teaching the full package of the yoga practices, not just the stretching, not just the um, kind of breathing practices, but actually also the, the more uh, meditative aspects and, and the deeper wisdom of the traditions. Same as in martial arts, you can go to a kind of normal martial arts class where they're practicing kicking and punching and all the sparring. 
um, but there are versions of, of martial arts that, that have a more spiritual quality to them. And actually the movements are fundamentally about training you into how to connect to the subtle energies of the body and how to connect um, to kind of cosmic experiences. Bagua is the one that I would refer you to, one called Bagua. Bagua. So Bagua is kind of like a mixture of what we might almost call kind of the traditional Kung Fu, which is a hard style, Tai Chi, which is then that more internal styles, which then does begin to bring in the sensing of the energy, the, the use of the imagination as part of the, the tool. Uh, and then Bagua has a, has a particular structure to the martial art that involves a lot of spiraling and twisting and turning um, that can then to create altered states of reality. A bit similar to the whirling dervishes of Turkey. I don't know if people are familiar with that. Um, so within the, within the Sufi tradition, um, there's also an option to just basically spin around and around and around uh, whilst in a meditative trance-like state and uh, pop into transcendent states as a result of movement practices. So different ways to, to access different things. Yes. Bagua. B-A-G-U-A. Yes, someone here. One of the surprising reports in the near-death experiences is uh, when you are snapped, seemingly snapped out of your body and look at your body from outside, which is completely against current understanding of neuroscience, it would imply that we have that kind of independent energy body which can sense by itself. Yeah. And uh, it's difficult to distinguish between a hallucination there and, and, and reality. So can you talk a little bit about what work has been done yeah. to maybe say remote viewing or, or going out of a room and seeing something which you cannot possibly know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is a growing and interesting literature on this. It tends to be minimized by the mainstream community who are famous for making the bar higher and higher for proof. Uh, and I heard um, somebody present recently and she said something like, um, these kind of mind intention experiments have been validated by more than 30 randomized control studies, which is way more than any kind of medical drug trial has ever proved efficacy of a drug that's being used, you know, to treat people. So there is this, this issue there about kind of who owns the knowledge. Um, and there are many people that have been working on psi phenomena from the 60s, from the 70s. It's having a bit of a resurgence now, but it's still problematic. Uh, in terms of getting people to really be able to have open conversations about what is the meaning of this because they get stuck on the consciousness bit. Now, Peter Fennec is my go-to guy for this um, because he has this kind of dual training, but he's extremely open-minded um, and he's really got this expert, wisness, uh, expert wisdom with this childlike enthusiasm for, for, for finding out new things and, and being open to what's going on. And, and he talks about some of the deathbed experiences um, very reliably saying they're not hallucinations. They don't have that quality of a hallucination. They don't have some of the same features that we might find if we were, for example, doing an assessment in a mental health clinic. Um, of somebody who had very classically defined auditory or visual hallucinations. It seems that there's a different quality to them. And often it's, it's to do with um, 
it's a bit more obvious, like the memory element of it. So the deathbed visions might be of family, of relatives, of pets, of old friends. Um, there might be sounds that could be sounds that are things that are, have meaning from your life before. Um, but he, his, his claim is that they're not hallucinations. There's something distinct going on there. Yeah, Peter Fenwick, he's in the list. Uh, let's, there was somebody next to you. Yeah, hi. Hello. Um, I have a question about the one of the routes to this other alternative, alternative state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned like psychedelics and how mm -hmm. that might be like a fast track way to reach that state. Yeah. Um, my question is just basically going to all of this. So. Yeah, welcome. Um, it's just um, I do understand that you know, people do have all these different experiences, but I'm quite interested in like the similarities. Yeah between, like physically as well as, you know, in terms of people's accounts, um, between the different states. So if you're saying we can take different routes to reach the same place, how do we know that we are reaching the same place? Mm. Yeah. Um, are we meditating and getting somewhere? And then are we taking psychedelics and getting somewhere else? How do we know we're going to the same place? Yeah. Well, we need to, currently we need to re rely on the qualitative data. Um, so these are the first-person reports. And again, that's, that's a, a type of data that's usually poo-pooed by mainstream science. You know, there's nothing more unreliable than asking somebody what they think, you know, this kind of, <laughs> this kind of attitude. Um, but that's shifting. I really do see that that's shifting. We're in this process of, of really moving from uh, a, a data and a, a science that's driven by data of purely observable phenomena, because that's also being called into question. You've still got an observer there, still got a human observing, and actually coming to like, let's listen to what people say. Um, and I guess from my experience, I, I was like you, I was interested in the commonality. So, you know, I do work with people with a diagnosis of schizophrenia or depersonalization, dissociative experiences you know, and really listening to, to what, those, what those people say about their experiences, some of, that some of that sounds a bit like when you're over here having conversation, you know, in dialogue with the Dalai Lama talking about very experienced meditation practitioners who are then talking about experiences that sound a bit similar, yeah? And then you talk to somebody that's coming at it from a, maybe like ayahuasca ceremonies or plant-based medicine against how they're describing it might have a cultural wraparound, how they're interpreting the meaning will have their own personal meaning wraparound. But there do seem to be these commonalities of the elements of people get to an experience of, um, you know, feeling energy, feeling loved, expansiveness, uh, a deep sense of trust, um, a deep sense of surrender. And I think as humans, we've been seeking that, you know, we've been trying to understand that in various ways throughout, throughout our history. And, and some of that's through the more religious and faith and spirituality practices and science is its own way to try and understand the world. Um, so yeah, let's, let's get these people together and have these conversations and see what, what, what's, what's similar and what's not. That's where the juicy stuff is, I think. Yeah. Um, let's have a couple from the back just to make sure we get some coverage. Just five more minutes, so we maybe take two more questions. Yeah. Yeah, you choose. Just a good spread of. I, I just wonder if there's any research about this type of sort of awakening or 
spiritual awakening, if you want to call it that, from NDEs, um, how enduring it is. Because I know with psychedelics or other types yeah. of awakenings and Eastern things or you know, spiritual awakenings, people, there's some evidence that, yeah, you can have an awakening, but if you really want to cement that, <coughs> you know, you need a daily practice or a pretty regular yeah. practice. And you know, the idea that you can get these things and you can lose it and you go. And, you know, in other words, it's, it's not like a bang, my whole life is transformed forever. I don't need anything else. In fact, you can't quite get away from some of the grunt work if you want to yeah. really transform. Is, that, is there any research on how, how lasting these effects from NDEs are? Yeah, that's a really, really good, that's a really, really good question, actually. And I'm, I need to say, I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess my, my hypothesis is it's variable because we're humans. <laughs> um, and, you know, some people do make very dramatic changes to their lives and they live very, very differently because they have that sense of trusting. Uh, and they're just not worried anymore. They're just not worried about anything anymore. And their day-to-day life can look very, very different to them. Um, but you're absolutely right, you know, there's, I heard one shaman uh, talking about, you know, this kind of trend for people to do ayahuasca ceremonies and he was saying, well, I, I, I heard that somebody did 50 ceremonies. Well, why? Why would you do 50 ceremonies? That doesn't make sense. It's not for recreation. It's, that's somebody that didn't integrate. Yeah, so they had to keep going back. Um, and these are tools. These are tools and technologies to help us in the transformation process, not things that we then need to rely on necessarily on a day-to-day basis. Um, but yeah, I guess, you know, in that awakening experience, I, I think Jack Cornfield's book speaks nicely to this, which he says, after the ecstasy, the laundry. Yeah, I think that in my experience of just what I've heard around the sort of, you know, the enlightenment world. The scene. <laughs> Yeah. Other people, you get a glimpse, you get a quite powerful experience, but then to bed it in, probably Yes, and the Buddhists have a name for this kind of people that get it fast. It's called, um, they say something like, not, not much dust on your eyes. So you just only had a tiny bit of dust to wipe, and then you can see clearly. Whereas everybody else is like, guys <laughs> going around like this. <laughs> yes, one more, yeah. Just, yeah, if you want to. Thank you very much, and thank you for a really fantastic talk. Um, I was quite keen to get the mic, because I was going to address that chap there, actually. Um, my own personal story was that I had a very traumatic head injury 12 weeks after the death of my partner, which was also sudden, um, and I was in a coma for a week. Um, I now write about neuroscience largely, and I've never really considered this side of this, because my experience, I won't waffle on, it was... I. It was sort of wordless and pictureless, but I was very, very aware. When I did come round from the coma, and I had a lot of the couple to, to get through, because I was told, my parents were told I was going to be paraplegic and all sorts, but um, what the experience set me up for, one, was not to be afraid, and two, that the mind and the body were going to help each other out in that respect. So all the time I was waiting for further um, brain operations, um, I was very focused on meditation. I'm, I'd always been a meditator, but then it seemed more important than ever in my life. And, uh, and my life has massively changed, massively. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm a linguist, it's, um, I'm an academic as well, 
but this was a, a marked a big turning point in everything. And also offered some comfort about the sudden death of my partner mm. and life itself. So um, it a hugely positive experience out of something so traumatic I can't even put into words how bad it was. Mm. But yeah thank you for sharing that really important and perhaps that's a, a good note to to finish at 12 o'clock so thank you very much for your attention